more you read those sections, you really see that there were particular exhibitors who were influencers, I guess we, we would we would call in our, our um, contemporary moment where, you know, they might have a, a small theater in rural Idaho, but they actually had a, a tremendous voice and influence over how other exhibitors would, would perceive a title. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. I went for the first time to the Pordenone Silent Film Festival in Italy. Regular Pordenone correspondent Lockie Heiss and I talk about what we saw and how we saw it. Then I talked to two of the researchers behind the retrospective of a forgotten German star, Ellen Richter. And if you want to do vintage movie research, your first stop is the Media History Digital Library, now 10 years old. I talked to Eric Hoyt, who runs it. Listen to the podcast Wids Daily calls Cracker Jack Listening for Soda Jerks and Flappers, Nitrateville Radio. Subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. year we talked with director Jay Weisberg about La Giornate del Cinema Muto, the Pordenone Silent Film Festival, the top festival devoted to archival discoveries and restorations in the world, held in Pordenone in the Friuli Venezia Giulia region of northern Italy. Going to it has always been one of my ambitions, but I hadn't planned on it this year until a couple of months before the festival in October when they invited me as a media guest to the festival's 40th anniversary. And so I found myself flying to Venice and then taking the high-speed train about 80 minutes to Pordenone. New Yorker Lockie Heiss has been our usual Pordenone festival reporter, but this year he and I met in person for the first time and chatted a week after the festival to talk about what we both saw. Since I'd never been before, I started by asking him what was different about this year's COVID-era festival. Well, I don't know how different the festival was, but I think we, as the audience, were very different. And, you know, after we'd all been traumatized by the last year and a half, two years. So I think we came with um, with that in our heads. And uh, I think the, the people who went there went to try to get some uh, some relief from that. And, um, I think that was very successful, but I mean, I, I think it's very rare to come into a festival like that with, with a kind of a group, uh, mind of, of, of the world and, um, you know, to kind of shelter itself by, by watching these films from, from, from a century ago. So 
that, I think that's that's a huge difference. And um, I mean, there were the technical issues, but I don't think that's important in the long run. I think the important thing was was um, Jay Weisberg's words when the opening night he says, you know, said something to the effect of, "We we're, we're having this because we have to, and and become because we have to." And I certainly felt that way. And I'm sure most of the people in that audience felt exactly the same way. So, yeah, you said the composition of the audience was different. I mean, I think there seemed to be a general feeling that Americans did not come to it that much. What what was your feeling about that? Well, certainly, uh, I mean, the people that I usually uh, expect there didn't show up. But on the other hand, Russell Merritt was there and and um, my, some friends from California. So uh, there was a fair turnout. I, I think a lot of the students didn't show up and then maybe the younger crowd. I think it was more of the diehards that came. Um, so I, I think there was a significant drop in Americans that came, but, but there was still a sizable percentage of us there. And, you know, of course we were happy to have you there too. There, there, there were more than a few people that were there first times. Um, so yeah. you know, yourself and a few others. So I, I think that we were, we were reasonably represented, but I think uh, probably the students in the schools didn't come as much. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, Italy was one of the places that was the scariest about COVID a year and a half ago. And so we get there, it, you know, if if we dare to go, we get there this year and things ran very smoothly, I thought. I, I, yeah, I was impressed. I was impressed by how well it worked. And uh, I think it's just a matter of the staff having done this enough times. So once you get uh, through the airport into the city itself, then the people who run it are all people have done it for a long time. So they just had to they had to shift a bit. To, for example, the tickets had to come in, and we had to assign seating and all that. But but they've done that. So I yeah, I was um, surprised how well it worked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, let's describe for people what you had to do. I mean, first of all, you had to get a COVID test three days, less than three days before your flight to be able to get on your flight. Then once you got to Portnona, you had to show your CDC card to get your lanyard and badge. Once you had that, it was assumed that you were vaccinated. So that was good. You didn't have to constantly be showing the thing. But you had to show... Your ticket to get in, you had to have your temperature taken. You had to, um, you had to be in your exact seat. I mean, there was one movie where I wasn't sure exactly which one I was in, and it was already dark in the theater, so I just plopped down in one of two places it could be, and they made me move to the other one at some point. I don't even know how they knew that wasn't my seat. Maybe it's that ship. They, um, they yeah. caught you right away. <laughs> right. Bill Gates ratted me out. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's talk about movies. I mean, okay. So the first thing is we all started the week. No one had ever heard of Ellen Richter. And by the end of it, we're like world experts on Ellen Richter. Who the hell is <laughs> Ellen Richter? Yeah. I was looking at the notes afterward and, uh, you know, she was a big star at the time and made um, I think a total of 70 films, which is just mind boggling. And, uh, and that's in like 15 years of the silent period. So yeah, she's making, you know, she's making mo- four or five films a year, probably to get her. I mean, imagine someone that, yeah. With that kind of output in, in Hollywood and how um, that would be, a, that would be a name that we'd all know. And 30 silent films, 1930. I'm looking at it now, 1913. To, oh, well, anyway, her career went to 1933. 
but but um, Austrian actress, and um, her career got you know got demolished uh, when the Nazis came to power uh, with her uh, Jewish background, and um, she had to eventually had to get uh, off to the U.S. She made it, but some of her family didn't. And uh, when she got to the uh, U.S., uh, she could not get a foothold in the American market, and that you know her career more or less ended. But 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 the other thing that was uh, was going on was that the the uh, Nazis did a pretty good job of eliminating any kind of uh, uh, of uh, uh, after thirty three. You just didn't hear about uh, the certain aspect of, of of the films. You know, they didn't get shown anymore. They were destroyed. They were put away. And, and that that whole chapter of of her and a lot of her colleagues was just gone. And, and yeah. And it was it was gone until recently. I was reading those notes and. You know, they they're they've just been pulling her. A lot of those films are are lost or destroyed, and they have you know they're pulling them up together from one print to another. And they're so this was a, one of the first chances anybody had even to see any of her films. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think to some extent, obviously, the Nazis were no friend to her career uh, being remembered by anybody. But also, I mean, she basically was made not to be written about by film theorists and historians because there's nothing, you know, sort of expressionist or avant garde about her work. She's very much a commercial star. And her husband, who directed a lot of the films, Dr. Willy, Willy Wolf, was a, a commercial filmmaker, a very skilled commercial filmmaker. In fact, I kind of think he was the more talented of the pair after seeing a bunch of the films. But in mm-hmm. any case, you know, they, they, she was kind of working across all these genres. There were the adventure serials. We saw two of those. There were, you know, rather dark uh, teens films that ended, you know, tragically. Uh, then you get into the 20s and she's making kind of, there's like frothy movies about the musical stage. So they're not you know, as someone who comes from that world. So they're not actually musicals, but they reflect that kind of world and, you know, that attitude. And, there, you know, and there's the one where she plays Lola Montez, so she's making, you know, a royalty romance, you know, private lives of King Ludwig, whatever kind of movie. Um, you know, so it's working in a lot of commercial genres and not, you know, not doing the sort of thing that would get you written by Lottie Eisner. Yeah, remember from that time period, uh, silent film in Germany. You maybe you can identify thirty films that were expressionist films from that time period. Uh, fewer if you get stricter with your definition, but say thirty or so out of the three thousand films that were made uh, from that period. So third, you know, so that's a tiny percent. So uh, stylistically, of course, you're absolutely right. Those those films became very packageable for uh, as art films. Uh, you know, across the world, and, and they were seen as that. And, but that left the, the you know, the two thousand eight hundred films that were, that to, that were as commercial, just like most other parts of the world. And um, and those all were, you know, until recently, almost all of them are forgotten. So, so she just was right. And so even um, without the the Nazi regime, you know, her her films could have easily fallen into and into a. a into that uh, into that arena of of um, of uncaring that uh, most of the German films found the, found themselves in. I mean, the Germans may have lar- have a large genre of of, of comedy films, and uh, you know they're popular comedies, but boy, you will never you know you don't see them except for places like Portononi. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was fun. I mean, I think it was kind of uh, something that the whole week was about to some degree was it was commercial cinema. It was popular stars. You know, maybe we've, we've used up the avant-garde by this point. Uh, you know, we've, we've found all those films. So now we're, we're just stuck with the other 95% of cinema from that era. Well, I think that's exactly how, how this, each time you have a, you go back to the archives and stuff and say, what do you have this time? And they're they're going to have to show these other you know two thousand films and uh, the other a, a great unknown would be the films from say nineteen twelve to about nineteen fourteen to eighteen right and uh, there's a huge number of those films which are which are seen only at festivals or you know places like this because they 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 don't have they don't have the via they don't have the stars or or the directors or they don't attached with any particular name right. So, yeah, the Eugene O'Brien type stars who were huge in that day, but are completely forgotten now. Exactly. Uh, you know, speaking of that early teens period, another one that I found pretty striking. Uh, I'm gonna have to look up the name because it's in Italian, and I won't be able to say it right. Here we go, L'Ombra di un Trono, which I think meant uh, in the shadow of the throne or something like that. It was a Carmine. I don't know. This says it's 1921. I thought it was 1913. I was going to compliment it on how good it was for 1913. No, it's actually 1921. But in any case, um, Italian commercial cinema, uh, a very, uh, I don't know, somewhat lugubrious uh, drama of royal intrigue roughly based on Rudolph of Habsburg, the one who uh, killed his mistress and himself in the hunting lodge. You know, that was, that was a good example also of, you know, commercial cinema working in that, that sort of vein of, of let's show the common people what royalty are like. And the thing I took away from that in the short that was with it was that, uh, the Italians had the best wallpaper in silent movies. Back then. <laughs> um, yes. Well, I'm glad you came away from this uh, your first time there, because this is not the first time you're, you're it's the first time, but it won't be the last time you. In fact, you'll be look trying to look away from the Italian wallpaper because you'll be seeing it anytime you see a, a feature from that era. You're going to be you're going to be taking notations and itemized at the very intricate uh, furniture and the wallpaper. Yes, they, 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 they may take a long time in their shots, uh, uh, but boy, they have a lot of ornate stuff in there. Yeah, that's, that you'll see, yeah, that's sort of typical of that time period. Absolutely. Starting a tradition of Italian set de- decoration that continued on through Barbarella and David Lynch's Dune <laughs> and all kinds of things like that. Yeah, well, I guess the white telephone films of the 30s are, I guess you could argue, very similar. Yeah, the, the descendants uh, of that. Uh, yeah. Although nothing was white in the in the silent films. It's it's all very dark and black. I mean, it looks like Godfather 2 or something, you know. Um, oh, yeah, it's rich and overripe. But, I mean, of course, according to the that time for the, your eye at then, that was completely normal situation, so. yeah. Another commercial filmmaker uh, star that we were exposed to for the first time, Snowy Baker. 
Snowy yeah. Baker was this sort of Victor McLaglin looking guy who, like McLaglin, was an actual sports figure who went into the movies. He was in the Olympics of 1908, I think. Uh, you know, horseman and and knew how to fence, and so naturally all these skills could be put to use in movies. And you know, they were they were all genre films. Uh, didn't have any surprises in them. I mean, things pretty much happened exactly like you expected them to, according to the needs of the plot. But I found them, you know, totally enjoyable. You know, he he was he was an Australian sportsman, had a you know, sort of likable screen persona and everything was shot outside, which I'm sure meant that it all looked more expensive than it actually was. But, you know, they were, they were fun little films. I liked the one the most, the one that, did they shoot it in Africa itself? That that had some really interesting location shooting. I, I think it was probably Southern California playing Africa, but. Well, it was well, it was well done. And uh, I thought that was a, uh, uh, a very nice film, but all these films were, as you say, were, were I would I call them serviceable. Uh, they're they're fun. They they're not uh, slow. They're not lugubrious, which is which you um, described in another film, which which is true. Um, I thought that you know, he does he did get the tradition of of the swimmer who who becomes the the I mean, but I think, thought he was his acting was more of the Buster Crab than the Johnny Weismuller. Yeah, I, I shouldn't call yeah. it acting even. I mean, it's just he had a nice personality on screen. And he was he, yeah. he was yeah. true to himself. But yeah, every movie had at least two or three times that he took a high dive off, <laughs> off a rock or something because that was something he was apparently good at. And by God, he was good at it. So He, um, he was. By the time they got to Weismuller, they, they figured out a way to put it into the plot where he sort of had to rescue somebody. But in these films... It's kind of charming how they just say, "Oh, there he is! Can you show us how to do a dive?" And, and they just stop the story. And, and why not? Why not? So yeah, so that that's another star again that no one had heard of, and now we're all experts on him. Um, I don't know what else. What did you really like? You tell me. Well, I, I thought this was overall a pretty pretty good. Um, uh, list of films. Uh, of course, they had fewer. They had two less programs per day, and, and I think that probably would raise the a average. Lot of the, oh yeah, the lesser films would probably just disappear for that. Uh, but I, I saw the first, uh, the the pre-opening night, Machiste in Hell, and um, I enjoyed that quite a bit. And uh, the the story with there is that that was Fellini's the first film that he remembered seeing. He was with his father, and. Um, he remembered that film very, very much, especially with all the, the machiste and, and the torment that he had with the, the women in, in Hades. And uh, he, as he said in his own writing, that, that he thought about that when he was doing La Strada. And, uh, and when you see Machi- Machiste in Hell, and, you, and then you, it would be a good double feature. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although quite long, but, right. but no, you could just see that you could see the whole, dynamics of the of the of of the strong man and 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 and, and the whole the whole thing that's found in, in some of Fellini's films in that in that in that one sequence. So I, I, I was very happy to see a you know a big screen version of that. Lady Windermere's fan, I hadn't seen that in a very long time and I'd really forgotten how good it is. I mean it's a yeah it's just a it's a lesson. It's a master class 
in foreign presentation, um, uh, it felt very Hitchcock to me. I, I, I hadn't thought of that before, but I mean, especially in the, in the middle of part of that film, I just was, it was this kind of this brilliant formalist Hitchcockian uh, quality. And, you know, arguably it's better than, than uh, Oscar Wilde in the, in the play, which could be kind of epi- epigrammatic. Right. But uh, you can't say, you know, this is just every scene, boom, boom, boom. It was just, it was just beautifully put together. So that's a, that's a classic film that doesn't get talked much about. Eroticon, which was the midweek film, uh, another great, uh, late silent with uh, uh, Ida the luminous, luminously shedding up the screen. And uh, there's a lot of good things you could talk about that. The, the complication at the end, uh, instead of a romantic triangle, it's a romantic pentangle. I mean, you know, five, five people. And so this is a, the, the first class film all the way around a, a late silent that displays all of its charms and everything it can do. And then you have the, the last film, the Casanova, which is uh, this this huge you know spectacular film from 1927, as you say, uh, uh, Mashukin was there. I, I saw I, I I looked at um, a, a painting engraving of of Casanova and and he looks eerily similar. Yeah, to <laughs> I mean, you really they look like almost you can just their face, their nose, everything is just very very. And so you know, whatever this guy was made to play this role, <laughs> and I, yeah, I like the I, film very much. I felt compared to like the ones that David Shepard put out, like uh, the late Matthias Pascal. I, it was, you know, it was kind of somewhat empty visual spectacle. And I didn't think his character was particularly, I don't know, just elaborated in a way that explained him interestingly, but a fantastic looking film. I mean, it is as lavish as anything you've seen from the silent era. Um, and, you know, again, speaks to that very late point in silent cinema when, you know, everybody knows how to just do it real smooth. And, you know, there are a number of films like that. Uh, the Joker was another one um, that was. Uh, I, I like, I, yeah, let's talk about The Joker. I like that uh, 1928, uh, James, James Bond in Nice was the, my subtitle for that. Right. Film and, uh, well, yeah, and, my uh, comparison it, was the equalizer because oh, yeah. he he kind of he you know he sees a situation happening where this you know rotter lawyer is going to blackmail the society woman, and he just kind of gets in the middle of it to mess it up uh, and you know that's kind of his deal, so it was kind of interesting seeing this proto superhero kind of character i mean it really has nothing to do with the joker but he is he is a guy you know or the saint he's he's a little bit like the saint you know he's just he's just a freelance interferer basically yeah, with liam neeson and yes yeah, so it looked exactly like liam neeson that's what everyone said afterwards um but yeah, yeah really really smoothly made uh you know, very late silent made in Germany. I think was it Germany or Denmark? I forgot. I think Den- Denmark, I think Denmark. Um, but with a partly English cast and based apparently on an English play. And you could kind of tell there was some definite stage business, uh, in it to different parts, but, uh, you know, I mean, it really, it just a film that kept you and you couldn't wait to see where, you know, what the heck was going to happen next and all of that. So, 
you know, everything everything you want out of a late silent that nobody's heard of. And a beautiful print was the other thing. I mean, that was yeah. a, that was a strength. A number of things that you wanted to look really good did look really good. So I like that a lot. And also I was very happy to see another episode of Who's Guilty. Um, title sold out. They, um, this is a, a series that came from the East Coast. They were shot in Yonkers, and and if you only saw this one, you don't get the whole picture of this um, of this series because it, it's it's as unique as a American series can be because they it's a you know in, in, in 25 minutes they they cover a lot of ground or some story, but by the end uh, everybody in the cast is either uh, is either uh, dead or spiritually crushed. <laughs> and, uh, they found them all in, in Gosfilm, uh, the, the Russian archive, and uh, maybe they can find the other two or three. But uh, but yeah, if, if, if you see the others, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's because you, you, you start looking forward to this kind of strange ending. The films that take on their own kind of uh, interest. And uh, we're not we didn't even get to Miss Lula Bat, which is a wonderful film that, you know, the American version of The Dollhouse. Right. And uh, by William DeMille, who's, you know, maybe... <laughs> Who knows? Maybe the more talented um, of the two, but right. but probably but probably not because uh, Fool's Paradise was also shown, and that was the first time I'd seen it. And I was very you know big screen, big audience. Uh, uh, it just shows you what what you can how you can perceive a film differently when you have it all set up like it's supposed to. And Dorothy Dalton did a great job, and uh, you know scene after scene I, that film. When it goes to the next scene, I don't know what's going on. I always love that with the movie when I can't predict it. Right. And who knows? Yeah, I don't think them. anyone was going to predict that this movie, which is three quarters set in a Texas oil boom town, was going to wind up in Thailand with the royal court <laughs> and a pit of crocodiles. But that's yeah, de- yeah, that's de- and, make, for and make it pay off. You know, you, yeah, you yeah. Get there thinking, oh yeah, but all of a sudden, hey, wow, this is a really great idea. Right, I really yeah. enjoyed Full of Paradise, and and uh, and then uh, and then Phil for short uh, by the direct by Oscar Apfel. I think that was most a lot of people just thought that was the discovery of the festival, and uh, uh, Evelyn Greeley, who was a star then, and you know no one knows much what's going on. It was a, 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 a this it was just a wonderful story uh, about this very uh, unusual uh, woman who's the daughter of a of a, uh, a classics teacher who. Uh, you know, who, who, who gets out of a bad situation after her father dies and finds herself in another college, in a college situation and, uh, uh, meets a guy who also teaches classics and, 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 but it's told from her point of view and it ends up being a proto screwball co- comedy. Yeah. And it's said that the, 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 the script is terrific. Uh, uh, everybody, you know, saw it, just fell in love with this film and I did too. And, it it also hopefully will make the um, the uh, the rounds of the festivals because it's a it's a film that's just a lot of fun to watch. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the other things besides the individual films. I mean, a big part of this is that there's really high quality musical accompaniment with everything. Uh, you know, beginning with the first night, Lady Windermere's fan, you know, I got to see someone I've always wanted to hear play and conduct, which was Carl Davis. Uh, and I thought that, yeah, it was wonderful. You know, it just makes the whole thing. uh, I mean, that's always, um, a real issue with other locations because it's sort of potluck with with a few exceptions. I mean, the Bond Festival, the San Francisco Festival, um, you know, they've been around a long time. They know, 
the talent, but, but the, you know, Porter Nona, you're seeing some of the best in the world. And right. That. Yeah. Yeah. Now we, so we, I mean, we had people that I know from the U S I mean, Donald Sosen and Phil Carley, Dr. Philip Carley were, were all there. Uh, and then a lot of people whose names I know, but I'd never seen in person, like uh, Stephen Horn, Neil Brand, Gabriel Thibodeau. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was really great to have that quality and that quality of projection, too, through everything. I mean, that was one thing I noticed is just, you know, if if something jumped out of frame, you know, no one had time to start going focus or anything from the audience <laughs> because they were right on it. Uh, the only yeah. thing they missed was one time the guy left the uh, the sound head on. And so we're watching a silent film and it's going blah, 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 blah. And uh, I think it was Gabe Thibodeau, you know, like starts hitting the piano going, da, 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 you know, to sort of <laughs> let the booth know what's going on. Uh, right. As you said earlier about the people who come in for the great uh, musicians and the, the big screen, there's not a lot of places on, 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 the, on the planet right now where you can duplicate that. And I think Portanoni understands that. And um, that becomes the reason you, you take your, pil- your pilgrimage to that town is because this is what, uh, you know, there's only a few other places on the, right now where this can happen. And, and, and there's no place that can have, you know, eight days of this in a row. Right. Yeah. Now, I think, uh, I mean, what became clear to me, I mean, Portnoni is not a particularly old town. There's there's like a 13th century city hall at the end of this one street that kind of looks like Venice with the, you know, artfully painted facades and stuff like that. But a lot of it is 50s, you know, apartment yeah. buildings and, you know, 60s office buildings and stuff like that. And so I think, you know, they kind of make up for it by having stuff going on in the town. I mean, there was an art and food festival the day that Portnoni, you know, that the film festival started uh, halfway through this regional foods festival just suddenly popped up in the square in front of my hotel, or I guess you were there too, our hotel. And, and, you know, the, in between films, I mean, I just sort of wandered along and people gave me slices of cheese and salume to taste, which was all fantastic. I actually, you know, brought some cheese back with me from different, you know, from Alto Adige or Sardinia or wherever, you know, different parts of the country. So, you know, it's just it's nice that there there seems to be a real commitment to making the town interesting you know, week after week, so far as I can tell. If anyone else wants to go, you know, we know all the the details now. So <laughs> yeah, you can you can contact either one of us, and we'll yeah. give you the give you on on all the yes. One comment about the, the Max Mac uh, King of what King of Clowns. Oh yeah, yeah let's talk about we that because they that was kind of a special thing because the very first Portnoni Festival had a Max Linder retrospective when he really was pretty forgotten. And so they had, they had just restored one called Max King of the Circus, actually his last feature film. I, the remarkable thing was that they had they had to pull together. You know, it takes a village. It took about what uh, eight or nine archives they had to, to, to combine uh, to get most of the, of the film back. But I thought they did a good job, and I, I enjoyed the film. And uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a interesting comparison with um, uh, Chaplin's uh, a circus film and. Uh, it is not maybe as good as Chaplin's. Uh, Chaplin had a, you know, a more cohesive story, but 
it's plenty good enough. And, yeah. uh, and then some, you know, in some ways it's a more, it's just, it, it's just Max Linder doing, you show, showing that, you see, he makes a move and you're thinking, wow, Chaplin did exactly that or did something similar. And you're just seeing this, this two, two very talented comedians approaching physical comedy in a very similar way. And uh, I, I find, I take great enjoyment out of watching him just to be able to compare him. And, you know, then, and, and Chaplin said that, that that's, that's the person he modeled himself at least to the beginning of his career after him. And, uh, and you see that popping out there when you're watching this movie and you, when you laugh, you can laugh and, and then have that as, as an additional interesting reason to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I enjoyed that quite a bit. And, and that's, you know, one of several films that I hope gets picked up and played around. I mean, that was, that was always interesting to me about Portnoni was seeing what would come out from David Shepard or whoever a couple of years later. And, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody's going to do a giant Ellen Richter box set or even snowy Baker. <laughs> there was always, I mean, there, if, if we can get uh, uh, Phil for short and a couple others out there, uh, it does, it, it strike, it calls to a uh, problem, the, the issues of a film like, um, like fool's paradise, because, I looked at the reviews afterward on IMBD and, and they're they're either bad or kind of mediocre. And I'm thinking everybody who did those reviews probably saw it on a small TV and uh, yeah, you know, and saw <laughs> so it on YouTube I, with no no score at all, most likely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that film is there's some films that kind of do okay on the, on the YouTube, but that film is going to lose so much in, in you know, Demille films in general because uh, they're made to be big and um, and that's a film that's problematic for trying to release it. Uh, you know, you, maybe it's better to do that on the festival run. Uh, right. That doesn't, that means that, that means it's not going to be seen very much. Uh, I did have a, a chance to talk to Russell Merritt about this. And um, uh, um, one of the reasons I go to Portononi is I can get people who know a, a hell of a lot more about everything that I do, that I know about film. And then I can, you know, pick their brains. But Russell was talking about how when he taught classes, he he would spend a good part of the first class just talking about he'd say to the class have you seen this film and then get a show of hands and then he'd ask them how they'd seen it and you know most of them had seen it on a, a tv or or even on a phone and then they would talk you know for a half an hour about what that means by the word seeing right so i think i think one of the things we take home from a, a festival like this is is we have to kind of keep thinking about what that bird means what is to see a film especially a silent film you know of that era because you know it, it we're going to be we're going to have this problem moving forward it's not going to change and we just have to kind of keep our minds open about what what it is to see a film and um and we, we shouldn't laugh at the people with the cell phones uh on the other hand we should understand that that they're going to see films in you know in a format that wasn't made for that and and that's going to be an issue. So I think, I think those things are all come out of it now, what Russell was talking about. I think it's something for us to be really aware of when we, when we read a review. As we said, the biggest retrospective of this festival was of a German female star, or should I say action star, named Ellen Richter, and her director husband, Dr. Willi Wolf. I met two of the researchers behind the rediscovery of this forgotten couple and talked with them about her after the festival. 
My name is Philip Stiasny. I'm a film historian based in Berlin. I'm mainly interested in Weimar cinema or the silent era. Uh, I have been writing about that, a book on the response of the cinema on to the First World War and uh, how, the, uh, how the experience of war and trauma um, made it into the German films uh, of the 1920s and uh, early 1930s. And together with Oliver, I'm working on several projects and projects and uh, this Ellen Richter project is just one of them. Hi, I'm Oliver Hanley. I'm a film preservationist and curator, uh, originally from Northern Ireland, uh, currently based in Babelsberg, just outside of Berlin, home of the famous Babelsberg Film Studio, where many a classic German silent film was shot. Um, for the last five years, I've been um, working and teaching at uh, Germany's oldest film school, the Film University Babelsberg, Konrad Wolf, where uh, Philip was also a teacher for several years, teaching film history classes. Um, previously, I worked in different film archives, and uh, with Philip, I share particularly um, a strong interest and passion for the less well-known films of the Weimar era and trying to get these back out of the archives, restored and onto screens, uh, uh, big and small screens, we could say. And as Philip mentioned, I'm uh, together with him working on this rediscovery of uh, Ellen Richter, which we've been busy with for the last three years. Um, and I, uh, in addition to co-curating the program that screened at the Giornata del Cinema Muto, I also supervise the restoration of two of the films in that program. All right. So, yeah, you say less well-known films, and I think less well-known describes Ellen Richter quite well. Uh, here's someone, you know, that I don't think I've ever run across her name in any English language source on uh, German silent cinema. But she was quite popular in her day. Tell me how you found her name and got interested in her. Well, basically, when researching other things in German trade journals of the late 1910s and the early 1920s, I found this name so often in, in adverts and uh, pictures and whatnot. Uh, and uh, so one day uh, during coffee time, I asked Oliver, Oliver, have you ever noticed this name, Ellen Richter? What does it does it ring a bell with you? And he said, "Yes, uh, I've I've heard this name, but I do not have an image in front of me." And the same goes for me. Uh, and uh, so we, almost like a, a sports activity, we we try to get as much information on her in a very short time. And uh, out of that, uh, we uh, we develop this project. So in the first place, I noticed, yes, I had seen one uh, Ellen Richter film before, but I'd never noticed uh, that she was in it. So she was sort of unfamiliar to me. And I've been asking other colleagues, uh, experts on Weimar cinema, uh, whether they know anything about her. And they said, yes, uh, we came upon a name, but um, basically she's not very interesting and some were well not very friendly about her but I think it is it has to do with a lot of uh, lack of knowledge so very few people knew more than maybe one or two films and one should say that the films that they knew were in very bad shape 
Um, and so our desire was first find out more about her, about her, her life and her uh, life as a production, um, in, in production, her life on the side of Billy Wolf, her director. And later on, we developed that into a film series and to, to sort of join forces with other guys who share our interest and our enthusiasm. Um, and it is not about sort of rediscovering masterpieces, but about rediscovering a certain uh, uh, personality that was important in Weimar cinema and that has been neglected ever since. And we were interested in rather the questions, why was she so neglected for almost a hundred years? I had also like seen maybe one or two Ellen Richter films without kind of realizing the significance in any way, shape or form. So there had been like what we could maybe call a couple of uh, stop-start attempts to, to rediscover Richter at various stages in the last uh, 25 years. So in the mid-1990s, one of her films was restored within the framework of a European project, Lola Montez, which has been re-restored now and presented in our program. Uh, another film was um, restored for a TV broadcast by Lobster Films around the same time. And then about 10 years later, another of her films, Schatten der Weltstadt, was restored by the rights holder, the Monau Stiftung in uh, Wiesbaden, and screened at the Berlin International Film Festival, which is a pretty good slot to get. And they said at the time they were hoping to be able to work on more films and work towards getting her better well known. But that sort of fell by the wayside because it was a time when it was very difficult to get funding for the preservation of less well-known films. You know, Metropolis can easily find sponsors, uh, Ellen Richter less easily. Yeah. You know, there are other figures of maybe a similar stature uh, about whom some people have maybe written at least an article in the last years. And some have maybe even got several articles or even a book. But Richter, it's really this, this, this dichotomy between the sheer amount of films she made, how present she is in the in the fan press, but also the um, the trade papers, um, and how little is is known about her, um, even that which is kind of in circulation. You know, these 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 very vague biographies, uh, contradictory information, and of course, lack of availability of the films, despite a rather decent number of the films surviving, which is what then led us to do the cinema program. Well, let's talk about who she was. I mean, essentially, this is commercial German cinema of the 20s, which is maybe why the academics did not regard it highly or consider it of you know, value to explore. Um, there's nothing in this sort of Krakowian way of predicting, you know, Nazism to come in her films. Um, there's nothing expressionist about them. I mean, it's it was interesting to see her sort of move through a number of genres. We started, you know, like with Lola Montez, she's doing a historical drama, a little bit like Polonegri might. Uh, but then we get into the serials where she's really kind of an action hero, you know, per, a German Pearl White. Uh, and uh, finally came to morale, morality, which is kind of a, 
a sex farce um and you know very very glitzily made looks like a musical comedy even though it's a silent film um so you know it was kind of a tour of a different german cinema seeing these different films from her that gave you a sense of what people were watching when they weren't all watching caligari three times a week well uh, well thanks for for your sort of perspective from the u.s i should say that we have the same perspective on american cinema because <laughs> Even if you're interested in silent film uh, and you want to see that on a big screen, you usually see the masterpieces or those films uh, made by those who made the masterpieces. Uh, and the same goes for German cinema, one should say. Uh, one can assume that, let's say, there is a, a number of films, maybe five directors or maybe six directors and maybe 15 or 20 films, be it 50 films. But they were they were making I don't know 200 and 300 films each year. Many of these not just for the domestic market but for the international market, which means they already made films internationally and not just for the sake of understanding this bloody German soul and uh, <laughs> so forth. The expressionist um, I don't know agenda of. Uh, uh, diving deep into the subconscious, etc., etc. Uh, these films were very open-minded, and they were looking for uh, uh, a certain international grammar. And um, probably this is what makes them less German, but also less interesting for those who are seeking the Germanness of German cinema. Uh, you will not find any of these films dealt with in film study classes. Uh, obviously, that's that's not the standard, uh, but this is that gives you an idea of um, uh, uh, the ignorance in academia and scholarship uh, when it comes to these films. Uh, so the big surprise may be that these films have such a quality, at least some of them, in terms of filmmaking, in terms of pacing, in terms of acting, charm, etc. And that goes especially for those genres which are not in the canon, which are not the Fritz Lang and Murnau films. Maybe they have to do a little bit with the Lubitsch films because they are so delightful, so, uh, so contemporary, and that they are not looking for explanations of the past or the future, but they are very much today's film. The bread and butter of German films had a standard that was so high that it could be exported otherwise. And we see that when we try to figure out where these films were uh, sold to, so exported, and where would they be found today in the physical form? Where would we find the copies? And this is what Oliver was mainly uh, doing uh, in this project, locate the films. Let's talk about, I mean, talk about her screen personality. Who was she as a, as a star? I think that is a difficult question because, as we've seen in uh, the selection for the cinema, uh, uh, for the Giornata del Cinema Muto, we have various films. So this historical film on Lola Montes, uh, in which she is obviously the star of a, a dancer that is sort of in touch with numerous very famous men from European history, from Paris and in England, and then later on in Bavaria, the, uh, the king of Bavaria. Uh, she there is supposed to be um, a gypsy uh, dancer, uh, which in history she was not, 
the, the actual person. Uh, in an earlier film uh, called uh, Aberglaube or Superstition, it's a melodrama. Um, she is also a gypsy who is stoned to the death in the end. In the action films, she is a little bit like a German Pearl White, a serial queen that maybe even more than Pearl White is active in her own way, that she is suggesting, for instance, technical solutions to problems, whether it has to do with traffic or some sort of uh, car or ship or um, some sort of transportation medium. Well, and like at that. one point she poses as the prince himself. So, yeah. you know, she's she's putting on a mustache and, and sneaking into the castle. So, yeah. you know, very different from the type of silent uh, female character who just sort of dithers on the sidelines. No, she's that definitely... She's... That is a very good point. And I think that is key. Alan Richter is best where she can act and where she can uh, sort of uh, have a certain uh, humorous or comical side to her. And this is probably why uh, morale, morality is so close to us today, because she is someone who is in the role acting already. She's a, a, a variety star in, in this film. And then she's acting within the story with a Silly old men who uh, who are uh, sort of basically they they are jealous of her success and they have a, a double standard when it comes to morality in this German small town, etc. etc. But what I would like to stress is that in Lola Montes and also in these action films, there are always these parts where she is cross-dressing, where she is acting almost in a silly form, in a silly way, uh, but very charming. And I think this is where she's best and uh, it has to do with her partners. So she is very often uh, coupled with uh, rather famous um, German actors, uh, comedians, sometimes from the stage, from the Berlin stages, sometimes also uh, involved in filmmaking, very little known today in the sort of the broad public uh, who are focusing on the classics of German cinema, but these were really the, uh, the, the, the spices of German cinema in the 1920s. These uh, co-stars and um, stand-ins, uh, I just love these films because they are so rich and they are so full of sort of uh, mystery for us because we've the, all this is locked away from us or has been locked away yeah. from us for so long. I mean, you describe us a, a, a German Pearl White. I think it, it really does go a bit beyond that. Um, Richter is never playing, never really playing this damsel in distress character. You know, she's on the contrary, she's she's the one saving uh, the male characters who have been somehow tied <laughs> tied to the train <laughs> to the train tracks in the films, or escaping from the running train, and and as Philip mentioned, the technical solutions, uh, whether it be uh, land, sea, or air. Yeah, let's talk about uh, the story behind uh, putting morale morality back together. Because uh, that was interesting, what, where the different sources came from. We initially suggested the 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 idea to Jay Weisberg about three years ago, 
um, our selling point was that it would be a fairly simple endeavor because <laughs> screenable prints exist in various archives. There had been sort of, let's say, straightforward preservation work. So like no um, um, reconstruction, but just the archives preserving what they had. So many were incomplete and so on, but it would have somehow worked. And then, you know, you just keep tapping away at the thing. And uh, at some point we had like five sponsored restorations that we then had to get ready for the program. Morale being one of them. Um, this was an interesting case because as is so often the case with many silent films, um, the best surviving elements are a rare thing indeed. So um, from Ellen Richter films, there's only two that we know of where the original camera negative, you know, the creme de la creme, if you're working on a restoration, um, happens to survive, one being Schatten der Weltstadt, which I mentioned earlier, and the other being Moral. And um, it was kind of a, a case of happenstance because um, the archive that holds the negative, the, the German Federal Archive, Bundesarchiv, they had scheduled it into their nitrate digitization program. So that was already in the pipeline. They were going to do 4K scan, wonderful, but they had no intention really of doing anything with it beyond, you know, scanning it for preservation purposes, putting it on the shelf. If researchers were interested, they could come and look at it, but there were no plans to, to really prepare it for, let's say, theatrical presentation, which was really necessary because um, two major reasons. One, the, ne the negative was heavily incomplete. So the first reel is completely missing and the first part of the fourth reel is missing. Um, it still somehow kind of worked if you watched it, but it seemed a little bit abrupt in places. The other issue is that the negative doesn't contain the title cards in their full reading length, but the so-called flash titles, which you would often find in negatives that are maybe like one to three frames long. So if you were to project it at the appropriate speed, they would literally flash on screen, they wouldn't be readable. So at the very least, this would have had to have been done. They would have been stretched to a reading length and so on. So in the course of our um, general print research for the program, but also for Ellen Richter, in general, um, we came across uh, an additional element at the archive of the Filmoteca Valenciana, which is the Film Archive of Valencia in Spain. They had a vintage um, nitrate uh, release print of the Spanish version. Ellen Richter, as Philip already mentioned, was a, a very popular internationally. Um, which has, of course, been great from the point of view of uh, the restoration, because if the films haven't survived in Germany, there's a good chance they've survived elsewhere. And this is indeed most of the times the case. So the only reason we've been able to restore the films or that they survive at all is thanks to this wide international distribution. So the, the print in Valencia had uh, Spanish titles. They didn't always match the German ones. It didn't always matched the German ones in terms of editing. It had been slightly censored, but the overall structure was the same. And the good news was that the first reel and the first part of the fourth reel survived more or less intact. There were maybe some missing pieces still, but we were able by combining these two elements to more or less reconstruct the, the film as complete as possible. We also used additional written sources, because it was necessary if you want to restore the German version, 
we needed to have a kind of idea, well, how was the German version when it was complete? So there are various kinds of documents you can draw on. In this case, uh, one of the main sources was a title list that had been um, submitted by the Czech distributor um, when the film was censored for release in Czechoslovakia in the original German language at least. So this at least gave us a framework by comparing it with other censorship documents, we were able to more or less, um, I would, wouldn't say with a 100% degree of certainty, but maybe a 98% degree of certainty, <laughs> re reconstruct kind of the structure of the film and the text of the intertitles as they would have appeared in the German version. And this was kind of our, let's say, kind of the skeleton onto which we 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 put the the organs and the flesh into in 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 terms of the image. Um, it was a digital restoration, which gave us a certain degree of flexibility of matching the two source elements, because the difference between an original negative and a print struck from the original negative can still be noticeable. Uh, but I think the technicians did a very good job. And then um, a student of mine at the University of Applied Sciences, she had the task of reconstructing the intertitles that were missing in the negative, but for which we had uh, at least the, the wording from this um, Czech title list. And she came up with a kind of graphical concept for the titles that were missing. So you notice a difference, but they sort of blend in quite nicely because restoration is not just about a kind of let's say an academic pursuit, but the film and particularly an entertainment film of its time should still work as, as screen entertainment today. So it should have a kind of flow, should not be jarring for the audience. They should not be kind of reminded constantly of, of uh, uh, kind of the sins of the past or whatever. We should say, I mean, she, she had sort of dark features, played gypsies and things like that a lot. And she was, in fact, Jewish, so her career came to a screeching halt in 1933. And that's pretty much it. I mean, what what did she do after that? She and Wolf pretty much, um, it was a, a fairly swift decline at that point. Um, they tried to kind of struggle on um, with Richter as a producer, although without any screen credit for a couple of years. Um, the mid-1930s, um, they... I don't know if they actively emigrated or if they uh, they claimed later or Richter claimed later that they left the country and weren't allowed back in. Um, in any case, uh, by the mid-1930s, they, they moved back to Richter's home country, Austria, and they lived for a few years in Vienna. Um, there's reports of them appearing at the annual film ball and things like that, but Clearly, any if they did actively try to pursue further career in the film industry, it didn't work out. And uh, Wolf returned to his uh, previous occupation, which had been uh, dentistry. So he was a, a, a fully trained dental surgeon before becoming first a playwright and lyricist, and then later a scriptwriter and film director. And they opened up the practice in Vienna. Um, by 1938, of course, it was time to move again because Vienna, was, oh, Austria was annexed by the Nazis and they moved um, to France and lived there for two years. And then when France was occupied, um, a they began a rather protracted and arduous process of trying to make their way to the USA, um, which they eventually managed to do via Portugal. 
uh, and with armed with an affidavit signed by Ernst Lubitsch. And uh, on the 3rd of December, 1940, they landed in the USA, in New York, where they made their home for the next years, becoming naturalized citizens after the war in 1946. And uh, an interesting anecdote on that is um, Ellen Richter's, Ellen Richter was of course just a stage name. Uh, her birth name was actually Kate Weiss, later becoming Kate Wolf after marrying Willie Wolf. Um, she was always Ellen Richter on screen, but off screen always remained Kate Weiss or Kate Wolf. Um, but it was only in the process of Americanization the naturalization process where she was required by law to take on a more American sounding name. So instead of becoming, I don't know, Kate or Kathy right. or whatever, <laughs> she became Ellen and for the rest of her days was then, you know, Ellen Richter was no longer the screen character, you know, retired from the screen so she could take it on in real life. Um, they never, what they, how they lived in the US is a complete mystery to us. Uh, they don't appear to have really been working at that time. God knows what they were living from. Um, maybe from these, one of these support funds for the, for the emigres that couldn't find work. Um, Wolf was try, according to an obituary, Wolf was, um, had, had uh, signed up to, to retrain as a dentist because his, foreign diploma was not recognized so he wasn't able to practice but it didn't seem to come to anything and while on holiday uh, after the war in in, um, in Europe he died suddenly uh, while they were in France and um, was supposed to be temporarily interned in Nice but turned out to stay there permanently and after after his death, Richter was constantly backing and forthing between the US and Europe. She's spending a long time in Europe. Um, by the looks of it, she seems to have been busy merely with trying to get her, um, you know, uh, uh, her Jews after the um, after the war with a restitution case that went on for years, which we have only started to dig into. Um, and she died then at the end of the 1960s, more or less completely forgotten and was buried next to her husband in, in Nice, where they interestingly had made a couple of films in the 20s and 30s. It is a very nice coincidence that we met someone in, uh, in Polinoni this year who would travel to Nice for research, uh, Maggie Hannafeld, a colleague uh, who's uh, doing the Nasty Women uh, series. And she went to the uh, graveyard where there's the grave of uh, Ellen Richter and Willie Wolf. She took a picture with a, a Star of David on it. Uh, that's a very nice uh, coincidence that we sort of located the, uh, the, uh, where, where she's buried now in Nice, uh, where she always wanted to be. I think the question um, uh, about her life and career after 1933 is so overshadowed by the fact that she has been erased from German film history uh, altogether. On the one hand, her career in sound film already declined so, to a certain degree. Uh, she, she was not featured as uh, the main attraction uh, so much anymore. Uh, um, and maybe a few years later, her, she, she would have uh, moved uh, into production uh, completely. But in any case, she was a prominent uh, person in, in, in social life, in, in, the, in the public. And uh, this was sort of cut off from one day to the next in uh, Germany under uh, the uh, Nazis. 
and um, I'm afraid it is uh, it is also uh, the film historiography of German film that neglected her and to a certain degree erased her from um, from film history. Uh, so she is nowhere to be found in the books on German cinema from the 1920s. And this is even more uh, drastic and more uh, noteworthy as there is hardly any other period in German film history on which so much has been written. Uh, so it is not just a fault of, uh, obviously, of film history. It is a fault of the Nazis that it came like this. And later on, and I hope we can contribute to changing this, it is a neglect on the part of the uh, archives that, uh, that have uh, sort of favored um, restoring and keeping uh, in sort of uh, keeping alive uh, the, the heritage of the better known filmmakers in Germany. And these were not just uh, male uh, filmmakers, Obviously, there were quite a few of these who also had to go into exile. Almost most of the famous film directors uh, uh, had to go into exile and uh, survive there. Um, and it is, um, it is so unfortunate that uh, among those who succeeded in continuing a career in Hollywood, uh, we forget all those who were not able. And uh, Alan Richter was one of these. Just as you could watch some of Portnone's rediscoveries at home online this year, doing historical research into old movies and personalities used to require travel, but it's increasingly becoming something anyone can do from the comforts of home. The Media History Digital Library was started by David Pierce, a past guest on Nitrateville Radio, to talk about King of Jazz and Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's now carried on by the University of Wisconsin's Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research, offering millions of searchable pages from vintage trade publications, fan magazines, press books, and more. The MHDL marked its 10th anniversary in September, and so I spoke with Eric Hoyt, Associate Professor of Film, Media, and Cultural Studies at UW-Madison and Director of the Center. I started by asking him how everybody used to do that kind of research. Yeah, that's, that's fun to take the, the time machine back <laughs> to thinking about how you would go about um, doing that kind of research. I mean, if you're researching a particular figure or company whose papers were saved, um, then you'd go to that archive. Um, so, you know, certain directors, screenwriters, actors, uh, left their papers to, to archives, whether it's the, the Margaret Herrick Library that's part of the Academy or the Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research here in Madison. Some studios left their papers um, too. So 
USC has the Warner Brothers archives and here in Wisconsin, we have the United Artists Collection. Um, but if you're just trying to research, or not just trying to, if you're trying to research a topic that isn't so confined to one particular figure or company or player, um, then the the trade papers would often be um, one of the things that you'd be looking at. The way that uh, Hollywood was reporting on itself and some of those trade papers were uh, transferred to microfilm um, in the, the 1940s and 1950s. So Variety, Moving Picture World, Motion Picture Herald, uh, all of those were, were on microfilm. Um, but there were many other trade papers that were not, and some archives and libraries had them and continue to have them in the print edition, but most did not. And so researchers would often put in a, like a, a tour of duty at the uh, microfilm um, station at their library, just going through and, and reading Motion Picture Herald or Variety or, or um, Moving Picture World, especially if it was someone studying the history of silent cinema, then they'd, they'd probably go to Moving Picture World, which ran from 1907 to 1927. And interesting things can emerge from going through it in, in a linear way. You notice things that were probably not on your radar when you were starting your research. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it's a very slow process, and you're using one source uh, extensively rather than using many different trade papers, which there were during the silent era. Um, and so those were some of the methods that that researchers would use if you were lucky um, and you could go to the, like the Margaret Herrick library, let's say um, you'd find clippings files for, for individuals or companies or topics. Um, and those could be really useful too, because you would go into the clippings files and you'd get a range of um, articles that had been clipped out about a, a particular topic. I remember researching the history of, of tax law as it related to, to Hollywood um, at the Margaret Herrick Library in like 2008 and using those clippings files. And I remember thinking at the time, like, well, this is really vital and crucial precisely because there will never be some kind of, you know, like federated search uh, or just like search bar that you could use to look for topics across many different trade papers. Um, uh, and then I think maybe because of having those kinds of feelings or thoughts, it was, it was very exciting when I started working with David Pierce on the Media History Digital Library uh, and trying to develop just that sort of tool that, that researchers could use. Yeah. And the, the, um, I mean, the holdings of those trade papers were probably quite spotty. I mean, they're not the thing a lot of libraries would have had at all. And there were so many of them, especially in the silent days, that I assume, you know, if you wanted to do a comprehensive search on a particular star or director or whatever, I mean, you'd end up going to a bunch of different places to track down a lot of these different publications. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, um, I mean, I think one thing that's that's really great about digitization is that you can take those kinds of, of magazines and trade papers and share them 
openly so that people can use them for lots of different research projects. And then some researchers might still need to visit places, you know, particularly if they're looking into one director um, or, or actor, then they will need to go to Los Angeles, New York, or here in Wisconsin to look at those archival papers. But they can, you know, use their time more uh, economically and wisely if they can, um, from, you know, the comfort of their, their home, while they're sitting in sweatpants, um, <laughs> run searches yeah. uh, across um, the, the magazines. Well, and I think another thing that's that's really crucial, and Nitrateville uh, users will identify with this, is you don't have to have a serious project and make the effort to go somewhere to start researching it. You can just sit there and kind of goof around on it, search for everything on, you know, Eugene O'Brien or Valeska Surratt or whoever you're interested in and just start to see what's out there. And that might, you know, ease you into a more serious project or it might just satisfy, you know, whatever curiosity you had at that moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, I, I think that's, that's another huge advantage of this is that it's just so much easier to kind of test out hunches and yeah, maybe just even like scratch some basic curiosity. We, you know, we use the internet for that all the time. Yeah. Um, and so, so I've you heard know, that exploring film history could, <laughs> is, is no exception. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great point. Well, let's talk about some of the things that are particularly interesting in holdings. I mean, first of all, I'm just looking at the, the fan magazines collection. And that's exactly the sort of thing that a lot of libraries would not have kept. I mean, I don't think, you know, the libraries that I typically did research in would have had, you know, photo play and... You know, radio mirror, Screenland. You know, some of these. You know, were that were basically pop culture. You know, newsstand, star-based magazines. I mean, they wouldn't have been seen as serious enough to collect a lot of the time. Yeah, that's right. And and here, you know, we owe so much to the film collectors who were saving those. Um, so even when institutional libraries. We're turning up their noses, um, fans, collectors, uh, film historians, whether they, you know, were film historians who had some kind of university backing or not, were saving those. And so, you know, some of my earliest involvement with the Media History Digital Library was um, uh, helping to coordinate the scanning of photoplay magazines and, and other fan magazines from Carl Thede's personal collection, an, an amazing collection of Hollywood fan magazines and trade papers that he generously loaned um, to David Pierce and I to, to scan. Um, and, you know, if it wasn't for people like Carl and, and other collectors, uh, we wouldn't have those. Um, and so the, the Media History Digital Library's collections has been built up through collaborations with, with private and personal collectors, as well as collaborations with libraries and, and archives. The Library of Congress collection has been tremendously valuable on, on that front. Um, but it's also worth noting that a lot of the libraries and archives that now do have those uh, Hollywood fan magazines uh, acquired them not initially upon their, their first publication, but um, uh, accession them later. 
when yeah. a private collector had, had put just a tremendous amount of care already into collecting and, and curating the collection. Yeah, not so different from a lot of older films, too. That's that, exactly right. Yeah. Another one that I thought was really interesting, and this was one of the the kind of uh, foundational uh, publications, I think, for for the library when it started, was Film Daily. Tell me what Film Daily was. Oh, sure. Yeah, so Film Daily um, began as WIDS um, reviewing service, and it then became WIDS Daily. WID Gunning was a New York-based uh, trade paper publisher and editor um, who first launched the magazine as a reviewing service, something kind of similar to what uh, Harrison's reports became later, um, although WID happily accepted advertising money, whereas um, P.S. Harrison did not. And that was in the mid-1910s that it um, started in New York City. Um, by the end of the 1910s, uh, I believe in 1918, it changed hands to a new publisher, Jack Alicote, um, and also became, instead of Wids Daily, uh, the Film Daily. And it was really the, um, the, the, the headline news service for film news coming out of New York. And so the individual issues usually range from four pages to, to eight pages. In some exceptional cases, it would be 16 pages, and whereas uh, Moving Picture World, Motion Picture News, um, Exhibitors Herald, the Exhibitors Trade Review, I mean, I just named four trade papers just there that were all also based in New York and publishing weekly, but what really differentiated Film Daily was that daily element. Um, so it was a way for um, the very latest news about happenings in especially the distribution realm, but also production to get out there and, and for information to become known. Um, the other really interesting aspect of Film Daily from an information standpoint is that, okay, on the one hand, you have that, that daily aspect of it. It's trying to get the latest news out there. Um, but Film Daily also became one of the, the premier services for aggregating and organizing the industry's information. And so in addition to having um, scanned, and again, from Carl Thede's collection, the, the film daily from the late teens through the 20s and 30s, and then we, we borrowed from other collections to, to help fill it out. But we've also scanned um, many dozen uh, film daily yearbooks. Uh, and those were the publications that were produced annually by the film daily that contain lots and lots of data and information about the industry over the past year and sometimes uh, information that goes beyond the year too. So I think um, the film daily was, was a real yeah, innovator in trying to kind of problem solve these information problems that the American motion picture industry was having. You know, one, one problem is, you know, how, how do we get the, the very latest um, and most up-to-date news? And the other problem is, okay, how, how do we organize um, all the, the, the data we already have? And how long did a lot of these early publications, I mean, is there kind of a heyday of that, that kind of thing for researchers? 
Yeah, great question. I mean, I'm um, in the final stages of copy editing a, a book right now. Um, it's called Inkstained Hollywood, The <laughs> Triumph of American uh, Cinema's uh, Trade Press. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, th- that was the title I finally settled on, uh, on um, Inkstained Hollywood. That's great, yeah. And, um, uh, and it really looks at the industry from 1915 to 1935. And I think that 20-year period is, is really remarkable because that's when the American trade papers are the most uh, heterogeneous. You have the most, you know, starting and stopping. Um, you have this problem of, of actually too many trade papers. You have so many of these um, magazines that are trying to report on the industry and asking the film studios and sometimes not asking very nicely for, for to, to buy advertising. Yeah. Um, and so one of the, yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the questions that really drives the book um, and this directly came out of working on media history, digital library is just why were there so many of these trade papers? Like how come the, the American movie industry has more trade papers covering it than lots of other American industries that were, you know, bigger, you know, automotive industry, oil industry, like (laughs) none of those had this many trade papers. Um, And so I, I I try to explore that in the book and and look at how um, really as much as we talk about the Hollywood industry as an industry, um, it's, it's made up of many different factions and um, those factions all had their own idea of what the industry was and should be, uh, and they could be quite partisan. And so even you know, among exhibitors, there are these divides between urban exhibitors and independent, more rural exhibitors, d- divides between um, uh, exhibitors who are affiliated with, with studios or, or circuits, uh, and those who truly are independent. And they wanted different things from their trade papers. They read them very critically, and in some cases would you know, dismiss a particular publication uh, as being in the hands of the studios, and in other cases really you know, exalt um, others for uh, standing up for the independent exhibitor. So for instance, Harrison's reports, uh, which was the reviewing service that uh, on the top of every issue said free from the influence of advertising, you know, that was, that's the kind of paper that uh, independent exhibitors felt like they could really trust. Um, and for a time, uh, exhibitors Herald um, published and edited by Martin Quigley was a paper like that too, especially from the, the mid teens through the early twenties. But then Quigley started to work very closely with, with Will Hayes, and the, the Motion Picture and, uh, Producers and Distributors Association of America, um, and in fact helped to, to write um, the, the production code. Um, and by that time in the, the late 20s, early 30s, um, he had lost a lot of credibility with those exhibitors. And I, I mean, I bring those up as, as examples here to just kind of try to highlight that you, um, part of the reason you have so many trade papers during this period is that there are these very particular communities and audiences um, of readers. And I shared some from the exhibition community. You also see this among the the creative community, the the people who were 
centered in Los Angeles. Um, they really wanted trade papers that they felt like represented them and, and their interests. And, um, you know, the, the barriers to entry were low. Right. If you were a, a publisher, you know, you could, you could make a go of it and maybe you would succeed and last, or maybe you wouldn't. Um, but what we, we have, um, left thanks, thanks to that, you know, really contentious environment and those low entry barriers, we, we have this just amazing record in print of film history. And, um, and it's, it's a record that, you know, we have to look at uh, critically, um, but, but it's also something that I think is, is really remarkable. And it's been really fun for me to get to, to work on both the, the digitization and, and sharing of those sources. And now in this book, book project, really kind of trying to help people um, understand the history of the publications so they can better interpret what they find within them. No, and it's really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at uh, the Hollywood Studio System collection, and it includes a lot of in-house publications, I assume, anyway. You know, when you see something that says, A Showman's Guide for Better Business from 20th Century Fox, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that seems pretty clearly to be, you know, corporate collateral going out to the to the troops in, across all the, the many places that their movies would play. Um but they, uh, yeah, I mean, it seems there's, like you say, it's just a lot of perspectives, and you maybe need to come to it with some understanding of, you know, what fish they were frying when they were, you know, in this in this business. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right, and that's something I'm trying to to contribute to with the new book, Inkstained Hollywood, but also over the coming year. One of our priorities with Media History Digital Library is to include more descriptions. So, um, you know, Film Daily, uh, Moving Picture World, a lot of the, the journals there have brief blurbs and descriptions, but um, a number of others do not. And so that's something that we're putting more time into this coming year, because I think that is really important. If you're, um, you know, if you find something interesting, in this collection, and I, I hope you do. Um, you can't necessarily just take it at face value, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on whether it's coming directly from the studio's mouth or uh, more of an independent trade paper, or frequently, right? It's like a combination. It's a, it's a trade paper that's reporting on a studio who, by the way, is also a major advertiser. So they are sure. definitely going to be um, pulling their punches. Uh, in uh, the kind of coverage they give. Yeah. Now, one thing I know that is a recent addition to the collection, you've started adding press books. And what are press books? This is one of the initiatives that I'm, I'm most excited about right now. Uh, and it's really um, been born out of um, some collaborations, um, first with uh, Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research, which um, Media History Digital Library, as of a year ago, is now part of. So the, the WCFTR um, has the United Artists Collection. Uh, and because the United Artists Collection also includes um, the Warner Brothers Library up through 1948, we also have tons of Warner Brothers press books, and we have press books 
from another number of other studios too. So about 4,000 press books here in Wisconsin. And um, thanks to support from the, the Mary Pickford Foundation initially, and now um, Matthew and, and Natalie Bernstein were able to, to scan them. And in fact, we'll be scanning all 4,000 of the press books. Um, to, to answer your, your more immediate question though, what is a press book? So these were um, short publications, anywhere between four pages to 16 pages that the studios prepared and they mailed out to exhibitors and they um, sent them out to exhibitors to try to really kind of guide those local exhibitors in how to promote the, the movies that were coming down the pike. And, you know, we have to remember here, this is before television, uh, before, you, you know, movies were opened um, simultaneously on, right, like thousands of screens. Um, no, this is a, a context where they're opening in different cities and towns, and there's coordination that is happening at the, the national level, and exhibitors have a particular run in the, the pecking order, going from the you know first run and then down through the subsequent runs. Um, but the, the studios, um, in many cases, were not investing in big you know, national advertising spends uh, across major newspapers. In, in some cases they did, but in many they did not. And they were looking to exhibitors to, to um, help spread the word. And the, the press books um, contained four sections, usually. One was news stories and reviews. I mean, <laughs> um, uh, you know, text content that the exhibitor could deliver right to the town newspaper uh, if they wanted some favorable notice, and if they, you know, knew someone over there who was game, then, you know, sometimes you get verbatim uh, in the, the Des Moines Register, uh, something that, um, you know, Paramount cooked up to, to help promote a new movie. Uh, there were also sections for um, ads, and so um, ads that the exhibitor could purchase in the local newspaper, um, uh, to promote the fact that that's what was playing that week, um, but that gave them the art. There were also, you know, ballyhoo um, and, and publicity ideas, and those are some of the most fun ones to read about. You know, the the kind of stunts that studios were suggesting that right. exhibitors should do to um, get the locals to come in, and sometimes those would be customized based on region and locality, and that's always interesting. And then the, the fourth section was usually accessories, things that the exhibitor could buy if they wanted to from the, the studio to help with the promotions. So all of those are um, encompassed in the press books. And so they're, they're really valuable historical sources for understanding the, the history of film advertising. Um, and they're also, you know, really visually beautiful in, in many cases. Um, and I mean, I'll, I'll give a, a plug here to the the work of um, John McElwee, who I know is a, a Nitrateville yes. um, guest in, in past episodes, um, who's who's you know written quite extensively and and really well on this topic. That there's um, so much to be learned from the history of film advertising because it is um, a, a wonderful historical source and also like you know aesthetically beautiful. At least, you know, a lot of the time. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I was just looking at. Uh, <laughs> I was just looking at the press book for Disraeli, you know, and these these very nicely, uh, you know, well done illustrations of of George Arliss in his costume, and thinking, you know, how's that going to play in Peoria or wherever, you know? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, right? I mean, that's part of the history of film. Also, is that like that mismatch um and Arliss's career sort of became that in some ways you know like he he very much feels like part of that um early sound film cycle when the uh studios were going toward legitimate stage actors and legitimate stage properties that seemed like oh it's gonna be perfect for the sound medium and then yeah lo and behold (laughs) like you said um the, the those audiences of the midwest were not um, uh, eaten up Disraeli um, the way that, that Warner Brothers would have hoped. Yeah, no, I always like that. You know, you read the comments from the exhibitor in, you know, Salina, Kansas, who's like, Ernst Lubitsch just gives me a big pain. No business. Uh, <laughs> people people were yeah. walking out. Yeah. Give me more horse pictures. You know, yeah, <laughs> that yeah, sort no, of commentary. Yes, yes, Mike, you're totally right. And I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and I mean, the section where you find the most of that is what the picture did for me, yeah, which yeah. was a very popular section first inside Metography, uh, and then Metography in the the late teens was acquired by Exhibitors Herald, and so it became part of Exhibitors Herald. Um, Exhibitors Herald uh, dropped it briefly in the late twenties, and then brought it back once Exhibitors Herald had become Motion Picture Herald. Because it was so popular and because, yeah, exhibitors, um, they, they wanted to know who they could trust and they could, you know, they felt like, okay, well, we can't necessarily trust these trade paper reviewers, but we can trust each other. And, um, and so there's, yeah, really interesting um, correspondence network. And the more you read those sections, and this is something that Catherine Fuller Seeley has, has pointed out in her research too, the more you read them, you really see that there were particular exhibitors who were influencers, I guess we, we would, we would call in our, our um, contemporary moment where, you know, they might have a, a small theater in rural Idaho, but they actually had a, a tremendous voice and influence over how other exhibitors would, would perceive a title. If I want to do a little research on something, what's, what's the best path? I mean, I can just stick a name in the search box at the top and search, but uh, are there other ideas of how to be most effective at it? So, so yeah, I mean, if you just want to kind of cast a really wide net, then I'd say go to Lantern, lantern.mediahist.org and run a query. And you're probably going to get a lot of results. I mean, especially if you're searching for, you know, Mary Pickford or Cary Grant, you're going to get tons of thousands of hits and so then you have to start thinking about how to narrow that search. And there are facets on the left side of the screen where you can narrow the, the date um, and, and, and look more closely to, you know, if, if you know you're only interested in, let's say, like Mary Pickford during the sound era, like, you know, not during Pickford's heyday, but actually uh, her career in the sound era, then you could, you know, narrow it. So you're only looking at, movies after uh, or you know clippings after 1928 you can also filter by um, particular 
trade papers. Like maybe you only want to see how Mary Pickford was covered in photo play or in variety. So there's, there's th those kinds of approaches. Um, but I also, you know, like a lot of our conversation has been rooted in, in you poking around the, the collections and I'm, I'm glad you did. And I, I think that's a great entry point for users too. So we, we maintain the media history uh, project.org website and that's organized by collections. And if you're just curious of kind of having an experience that's less like a Google search and more like browsing through a library, um, then I, I recommend that entry point because you will notice things that you probably wouldn't notice in a search and vice versa. So, I, I mean, I think they, they pair well together, you know, like you'll find things in the search process that where, that where you never think to look, but also if you're browsing, you'll see that, you know, 20th century Fox organ that we were talking about, um, or you'll notice press books. Um, and, and those can also be really good places to do research. Um, I think if you, if you know in advance that you're interested in something that's like very confined to a particular moment in time, like you want to see what the um, Hollywood's kind of interpretation of the stock market crash of 1929 was like as it was happening, then yeah, going into those those collections and looking through them in a more linear way can, can also be a really valuable um, uh, way about doing it. Yeah, and I just think I mean I'm I'm big on browsing and serendipity for this sort of thing. There's just a lot that comes from sinking into old publications kind of picking up the feel of the time period the, the language people used you know the i mean the thing that's so great about you know what the picture did for me is you just get such a vivid picture of those you know those guys with a stogie in their mouth you know being so <laughs> harsh about how something played in their little one horse town um you know i mean it, it just comes to life in in such a way so oh yeah yeah, completely. So, highly recommended. Waste, you know, if you're going to waste time on the internet, do it this way. Is my feeling. So, well, well, I, I like that. Okay, <laughs> I think we might have to quote you, Mike, and, and, and put that at the, the top of the website. <laughs> All right. Anything else that uh, that you'd like to say about it that I didn't bring up? I, I do want to just acknowledge and, and pay tribute to the vision of David Pierce. Um. David is no longer the director of Media History Digital Library. Uh, he's moved on to, to other things. Um, but, but it really was David's vision that got this whole project going. Uh, and in particular, he, he understood three things and, and how three things could come together. I mean, the, the first thing that, that David really understood was uh, copyright law and, and knowing that um, most of these magazines up through the mid-1960s were in the public domain. So there was a, a big pool of material that we could digitize um, and, and share freely online. And that has enabled so much. Uh, the, the second thing that David um, understood was that scanning um, movie magazines and trade papers scaled really well it scaled well in multiple senses that it was relatively inexpensive to, to scan material that way 
compared to scanning, you know, like, well, 35 millimeter film prints, yeah. let's say. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and, and also that it, um, it scaled well with the metadata entry that we, we enter. So, you know, we could enter um, 20 lines of metadata to describe an entire year of film daily or photo play, and then let optical character recognition do a lot of the rest of the work. Um, and also scaled well in terms of research questions. And we were kind of talking about this at the beginning that, um, you know, like there's, there's just so many different research questions you can bring to photo play or film daily or variety. Um, and, uh, you know, more, I would argue, than you could bring to the Alfred Hitchcock papers, you know, like a, a obviously very important filmmaker, but ultimately there's more different research projects that we could support by scanning um, these common magazines and going after the special collections. Uh, and then the, the, the third thing that I think um, data, uh, David really put together quite beautifully was just this consortium model and realizing that, um, you know, no single institution had entire print runs of a lot of these magazines. Uh, Moving Picture World is a great example no library or, or archive as, as far as we know on this planet has the entire print run from 1907 to 1927. Um, but using digital technology, we could scan, um, uh, we could scan um, various volumes around the world uh, and create a digital comprehensive edition. Uh, and then in the metadata also acknowledge where we got it from. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the last thing I'd just bring up is a, uh, a shout out to David Pierce for his, um, initial vision to, to get it going. And also a shout out to my employer, the, the university of Wisconsin, Madison, um, for its support and, in, in keeping it going because, uh, it does take a lot of work, uh, and resources to, to keep a project like this running. And so. I'm grateful to um, to Wisconsin for for supporting its um, ongoing maintenance, and I'm I'm grateful to the ACLS, uh, American Council of Learned Societies, for a, a generous digital extension grant uh, that we got a year ago that, that's been enabling us to to do more good work, and um, we're going to keep doing it. So the you know the, the last thing I'd say to Nitrateville users is, is thank you for using Media History Digital Library and Lantern, and please know that the, the best is yet to come. Links for the Media History Digital Library will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Lockie Heiss, Philip Stiasny, Oliver Hanley, and Eric Hoyt. And thanks to Juliana Puppin and Maggie Hennefeld. Music is by Kevin McLeod and Brett Van Donsel. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing at the podcast app of your choice. 
And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.